Welcome to the Fiber for Breakfast podcast, a series that discusses fiber as the critical infrastructure for today's growing broadband needs. Listen in as Gary Bolton, CEO and President of the Fiber Broadband Association, speaks with industry thought leaders and experts about connectivity issues and the impact on the remote workplace. I hope you enjoy today's discussion, which will start momentarily. And remember, subscribe and like this podcast on your favorite platform. This week's Fiber for Breakfast brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Wesco. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Fiber Broadband Association's Fiber for Breakfast. I'm Trish Ehlers with FBA. Gary will be joining us shortly. Uh, we are now in our 29th episode of 2023, and uh, I would like to thank our sponsor, uh, Wesco, the platinum sponsor of Fiber for Breakfast. Last week in Washington, D.C., FCC Chairwoman Jessica Rosenworcel responded to a letter from Senators Wicker, Hyde-Smith, and Vance. In the Senator's letter, they highlighted that ARDA Phase 1 had a budget of $16 billion, while $9.2 billion was awarded in the ARDOF auction, only $6 billion was actually authorized. So the Senators believed that the FCC had $10 billion sitting on the sidelines, and that some of that money could be deployed to the network operators with RDOF projects to help offset the high cost builds from inflation and supply chain issues and so forth. In the chairwoman's response, she explained that while RDOF was slated to have a budget of $20.4 billion, that money is not sitting in reserves. The funding actually came from USAF contributions. As only $6 billion have been committed, thus the USEF contribution factor was adjusted for the $6 billion. This explanation is very enlightening, as I too thought that the FCC had $14 billion of dry powder that could be deployed for further RDOF or ACP. It also explains why the USF contribution factor is so high. Also last week, the U.S. Senate Committee of Commerce, Science, and Transportation approved the nominations for Anna Gomez to fill the open commission seat at the FCC, along with approving the nominations for incumbent FCC Commissioner Starks and Gar. These nominations will now be sent to the Senate floor. I believe Gary is with us and I'll let him uh, take over from here. All right, thanks Trish. And sorry, I think I had a little computer crash here, but uh, yeah, so hey, we have our FC, our Fiber Connect 2023 in Orlando is in August 20 and 23rd. We're five weeks out and we're completely sold out at the hotel at the Gaylord Palms, but we just opened up reservations at the Delta Hotels by Marriott, which is just around the corner. So if you haven't registered yet, please do so because the Delta will sell out soon. And then today at 11 um, Eastern, I'll be hosting Where's the Funding with our guest, Chris Perez, uh, the Municipal Capital Markets Group. And we'll be discussing tapping municipal markets. You're not going to want to miss that, so please register. Um, and then lastly, um, we have our final Regional Fiber Connect workshop in Minneapolis on October 24th. Registration is open, so please, uh, we'll see you in Minneapolis. With that, it finally brings us to today's Fire for Breakfast session with our good friend Ryan Kuntz, Manager Director and Senior Research Analyst at Needham. Ryan's going to discuss federal funding and economic impacts on the fiber broadband industry. Last week on Fire for Breakfast, we had the pleasure of hearing from top industry research analyst Julie Kunstler of Omnia Informa, who discussed the North American pond equipment and vendor market. 
you know, Julie's all, always a wealth of information and industry insights. Today on Fire for Breakfast, our guest is Ryan Koontz, the Managing Director and Senior Research Analyst at Needham. And Ryan's going to discuss federal funding and the economic impacts in the fiber industry. Ryan joined Needham and Company as Managing Director and Senior Analyst in 2021, covering broadband networking and cloud communications equity sectors. Before Needham, Ryan covered cloud um, communications and network sector at Rosenblatt Securities for three years and previously founded two independent research businesses at Woodside Capital and Inflection Point Research. Before equity research, Ryan held key management positions at AFC, Ericsson, and AT&T developing fiber access products. Ryan holds a BS in electrical engineering, an MBA and MS in electrical or engineering management from Cal Poly. So welcome, Ryan. And for audience, hey, please type in your questions as we go, and we'll work them into the Q&A. With that, let's get things rolling. Great. We go to the next slide, please. Uh, just a quick uh, dis uh, disclosures uh, from a legal regulatory framework. Whenever I make public appearances, I can email these to you if you're interested in reading them in detail. Uh, I, I don't encourage it. <laughs> it's uh, pretty boring stuff. Uh, as Gary's my background, I've been in the industry for 30 years, both on the sell side, where I advise uh, investors on particular stocks in the industry, as well as um, my industry background developing products, and prior to that with, with AT&T. So my focus here on my, within my broadband networking sector, which probably comprises on about two-thirds of my research work these days, is really in the access network that is connecting content and connecting the network to individual users, whether that's wireline, wireless, satellite, uh, you know, mobile, fixed wireless, cable, you name it. So that's that, that's really my my wheelhouse where I've been focused, you know, for the last uh, 30 years, and uh, particular on the equity research side here now for uh, almost a decade. So you know, I think it's a little helpful to um, uh, reflect on a little bit of history here, because uh, history can teach us some lessons about why things are the way they are. Um, you know, the, the uh, history of the telephone network is really fundamental here in terms of uh, you know, making uh, universal service available you know, over copper lines. Uh, we, of course, that, that uh, in turn created, you know, hun many hundreds of local tel telecom operators. Uh, they, they eventually consolidated as part of the Bell system, a large part of that. And we had the break of the Bell system, of course. And it, with the advent of the uh, uh, of DSL technology, there was a, a very large bid in 1996 uh, called the, the Joint Procurement Consortium, the JPC, that really led to the first major broadband build-out in, in the world over, over copper. Uh, you know, the, the, the uh, tel telecom operators took an early lead there with DSL before cable um, came to market and really dominated for the past couple of decades in terms of taking share as the copper DSL technology ran out of ran out of juice, essentially. Um, and in the U.S. here, you know, in terms of fiber deployments, you know, our, our, our diverse geography certainly is a big challenge and creates a lot of high cost areas relative to other, you know, uh, you know less uh, dense uh, countries in particular. And then, of course, we have our own like, political issues in terms of, you know, changing heads of the uh, regulatory uh, bodies on federal level, as well as local regulatory hurdles, you know, such as permitting and digging up streets and a general resistance to change. Um, so, I, you know, I really feel like the lack of a long-term national policy uh, has really been a hindrance and the biggest reason why the U.S. is lagging. Um, and 
over this time more recently, innovation has, has driven down upon technology costs tremendously over the last couple of decades. And, uh, and there's a lot of advances in, in labor efficiency that make delivering fiber uh, much more cost effective. And the, the economic advantages, even from a macro perspective, uh, are, are just uh, are massive and compelling uh, in terms of the GDP impacts of, of deploying fiber. So, you know, we've seen some, some shifting federal policy, obviously, in, in a very positive way here with $100 billion, roughly, in, in new programs. Um, there were some historical uh, bipartisan programs that were, uh, you know, such as the Rural Utility Service, you know, the CAF funds, the broadband stimulus, and then we had this RDOF several years ago. You know, I really feel like, for the most part, uh, uh, up until more recently, these programs were really sized for kind of copper upgrades and they were kind of incremental to service high cost areas and uh, helping subsidize a lot of these rural deployments. And so with a, a number of these new initiatives, namely the, you know, the ARPA and the uh, IIJA uh, in 21, we really now have a substantial uh, funding to close this digital divide for the 20% of homes that lack broadband. Um, so these these are coming to market. You know we are um, you know I, I think challenged with you know the the rate that, at which these programs roll. Uh, they are federal programs, and we involve lots of government and and re regulation and process. And so you know relative to I think traditional high tech industry speeds, these programs you know in some ways uh, from investor perspective, I can tell you that you know patience. <laughs> Is, is is generally thin in the in the uh, stock market, and you know it really takes a long-term perspective to to really you know keep your hat on in the right direction here. You know clearly objective here is is making ubiquitous broadband for all as as defined by by the FCC. You know it's it's vital for our economic uh, infrastructure, and the the pandemic really shined a light on how critical broadband is for you know functioning household in our country in terms of you know remote work and education, health services, et cetera, and uh, the fact that the U.S. ranks, you know, 31st in, in fiber access today is, you know, somewhat embarrassing. And I, I, I hopefully a gap that we're going to close, you know, over the next, uh, you know, five to 10 years. So, you know, what are some of the implications of this new policy and these funding programs? I think it's interesting to look at relative to the past. Um, starting with, with uh, number one, you know, the, the cable operators are truly now invited to the funding party. And I think for many years, Cable uh, it was was viewed as a video first uh, platform, uh, and as they have pivoted their focus to broadband and and uh, the consumer behavior has shifted away from linear programming to to over the top and and on demand streaming, um, uh, it, it's really kind of leveled the playing field there, uh, and and we're seeing now the cable operators participate um, in in uh, a lot of these awards and and using fiber to build out adjacent new service areas to what they're doing. Uh, this, this, of course, coincides with their own adoption of new DOCSIS technology, DOCSIS 3.1, and, and, and the changing architecture there. DOCSIS 3.1 is really the, the, the signal format, and there's also a pretty massive uh, physical change in the network where they're going to distri both distributed access architecture, where the DOCSIS modem moves out into the network, as well as uh, virtualization of the uh, the CMTS core, so moving from a hardware to a software domain, much like has happened across the data center market and the telecom market, is also impacting the cable market. So they're they're they are uh, happy new participants, I think, in this industry. 
Um, we're also seeing a lot of new entrants enter uh, the market here as well, and as far as operators go. Um, municipalities, power co-ops, and, and overbuilders have been, um, you know, big players and becoming bigger and bigger players every year. Um, and this this new model of a wholesale uh, open model, which we've heard about more recently in some of uh, the other FBA uh, uh, sessions, uh, is, is really interesting in, in terms of the, the open access model, I think. Another big implication is, uh, is, is keeping our eyes on what's going on in the wireless domain. And, um, you know, fixed wireless, I think for much of the past couple of decades, uh, has had its fits and starts in trying to, you know, keep up with the speeds that, that uh, fiber and wireline uh, can provide. And, and, and I think it's been, a, it's been a struggle. So they've been kind of relegated to the edge outs and now in uh, and, and the very high cost areas. And now with funding coming into fiber, it's very interesting to see some of these fixed access players also pivot now in terms of the technology providers, pivot now to also offer uh, their own fiber access platforms as they see funding come into this area. Uh, but I will point out though, that there are, there are some next gen fixed wireless access technologies uh, that are coming to market here in, in real time here this, this year and next that sound quite impressive and talk about gigabit, gigabit size uh, uh, capabilities downstream. Um, the, the fact that uh, there are new ASICs coming to market that were custom developed for fixed wireless, as opposed to repurposing either a Wi-Fi chipset or a you know 5G mobile chipset uh, for fixed wireless, uh, you know I think has the potential to to raise the game and and make fixed wireless a real player here. I, when you think about 5G and you know repurposing in essence excess 5G spectrum. I'm a little less bullish on that area. I, I, I think that um, what we're seeing happen now on, on the 5G front was, is a decline in investment this year. It's actually a pretty radical decline. I don't know if you saw Ericsson's results last week, but their North American sales were down over 40% year over year, which is right in line with what I, I've been expecting that 5G uh, uh, radio, uh, the RAN investment is in big decline. And the, re the biggest reason for that is because the new 5G core has, has still not stood up. And this was, the 5G core was envisioned as uh, a platform that which enterprises could develop new services over. And it's, it's just, it's a multi-vendor, new virtualized solution. So it's seen many years of delays and there's no real line of sight, I would say now to, to, to win the new 5G core is, is definitely gonna be operating in, in full uh, feature set. So, um, you know, I think it's going to be attractive for very, very low end users that don't see need for streaming and things like this. The you know, T-Mobile's been pretty aggressive out there, but you know, I don't think it's it's a viable competitor in in my opinion with with fiber. So, you know, a lot of excitement about fiber uh, installation and and uh, record years over the last several years. That the FBA has been a really have done a great job, and you know, hats off to Gary for for um, you know. Uh, uh, representing the whole industry and getting some incredible things accomplished uh, at the FBA. Um, so a lot of investor excitement, particularly uh, last year, we saw some stocks really outperform in 22. And coming into 23, we, we saw some real pullbacks in these stocks and, and some disappointing bookings uh, in, in the first quarter of 23. And uh, I've taken a lot of investor questions about what, what's happened there and industry folks are scratching their heads as well. And so to try to set some light here on what happened coming into to 23. Um, so 
in 22, don't forget, we were still facing a very, very challenging supply chain. And I think a lot of service providers were, were buying uh, quantities and placing orders out of fear of not having available product from a very tight supply chain. If you recall, ports were clogged, uh, 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 semiconductor production was difficult, and the, the pandemic had a lot of impacts on, on global supplies, you know, everything from toilet paper to, to chips and dip. <laughs> so, um, you know, the, we, what we saw was customers place very long lead orders, service providers, uh, over 12 months in some cases for many products in order to lock in supply. Uh, and what happened was, uh, I think a lot of accumulated invent product inventory um, at the end of last year was accumulated for products that were no longer impacted by the supply chain constraints. So just as supply started opening up, the operators kept operating under the old model of buy anything you can. And what we saw was that customer prem equipment and fiber optic cable and fiber connectivity uh, products were accumulated, I would say, in, in excess of what was really needed as, as supply started opening up. In addition to that, we saw uh, a handful of service providers, uh, tier one and tier two providers in the U.S. primarily, you know, have some have some modest misses on their targets for number of homes passed last year. They, they, they kept raising the bar, trying to do more and more every year. And some of them missed their targets. I, I think the biggest impacts on these, they were not massive misses to the tune of, you know, 10, 20%, I would say on average. But what we saw was that uh, permitting uh, by local um, municipalities, it became a big challenge in terms of executing and, and increasing the velocity of installs. Labor costs, of course, uh, were, were a major uh, concern. Inflation, just general inflation on, on parts and services in general. And, and in addition, we saw some inefficiencies of operators uh, at scale, which means, which is my way of saying, the left hand is not talking to the right hand. So um, many of these uh, service providers, as a, as a result of that, reduced their, uh, their targets in 23. And this all, you know, contributed to inventory uh, holdings in this year that you know sound like they're, they're going to last for a little while and it really became a challenge for a number of suppliers so deployment numbers we still hear are ramping you know from reports out of the operators but these inventories result in this procurement pause for a number of products at, at tier one and tier two operators and i think we're going to see you know uh beginnings of a restart in second half 23 but probably not get to a full normalization of demand until 24. And you know that's uh, that's a challenge for some of these stocks and some of these companies as they navigate this. Uh, I think a lot of folks were surprised. Uh, a lot of these inventories were held at the customer, and for most of these op for most of these suppliers, they don't have that visibility of what's at the customer until until it's a problem. So, you know, in general, um, you know, we, we still remain very, very bullish in our multi-year view of the sector, despite some of the pullbacks in, in these stocks. Um, I'll just point out it's a really tough market. Uh, the investor uh, patience, as I mentioned earlier, is very thin, very, very trigger happy, and a lot of a lot of panic at the hint of any kind of bad news uh, these days. Um, you know, these federal subsidy programs, they are they are slow and methodical. You know, I, I personally have been hearing about you know, in, you know, increasing uh, bookings coming from ARDOF and, and ARPA, uh, probably not going to affect, uh, have a material impact on, you know, supplier revenues until 24, just because these long lead times. Um, 
And uh, you know, fiber in general, though, I would say we view as the long-term winner, of course, um, with DOCSIS and, and fixed wireless, fixed wireless definitely going to have an impact you know, over the coming years. I think we will see a steady shift in spend away from DOCSIS, away from fixed wireless over into fiber. But, you know, it's, 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 it's going to be many years, I think, where these business, where DOCSIS and fixed wireless still remain relatively, relatively healthy. So uh, with that, you know, uh, we can we can open up for questions, Gary. If you have any uh, from the from the audience, hey Ryan, thanks so much. This is, you know, right a great perspective, and uh, thanks for addressing kind of the softness we saw in the first half this year. You know, that's really I get lots of questions about that. Is what's going, but what's interesting is our researchers are saying is our deployment is you know we're still on track to surpass last year in deployment. So deployment's still going like that. It's yep. just really the inventory correction. It seems to be the issue and just when is that going to come around but let me start with um you talked about 100 um, billion dollars in federal subsidies um it looks like you know we start out with somewhere similar to that number on private capex investment from mm -hmm. the tier ones and tier twos and cable and everybody trying to get ahead of this before all the fiber federal funding comes in what what are you seeing here on the on the private side yeah, it's interesting. You know, uh, capex in general, there's been a lot of uh, a lot of consternation about that. I would say, from an investor perspective, and and messaging from the larger operators, I, I think sentiment in the fiber industry is impacted by what I talked about on the 5G front, which is some of the suppliers, let's say guys that sell test equipment to the fiber side and the wireless side. I think they're seeing a lot of weakness from wireless. They're not necessarily calling that out. But it's resulting in negative sentiment um, on 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 the capex side specifically. You know, we the we are seeing declines in wireless, and I think we're seeing uh, sh a shifting in the buckets away from wireless over into wireline. Um, I, I think more than ever, um, the the view is that the first fiber operator there is if they've got a solid product, they're going to have an advantage, obviously, over over the second and third builders. So it's it's somewhat of a of a race to to build out. You know, there's one particular tier one. I would I don't want to say names here, but they had some real cash flow challenges over the last few quarters, and capex has been very very tight. They're one of the bigger fiber builders here in the U.S. Um, where I'd say the the balance of the market, uh, capex is healthy on the wireline front, despite I think you know, a lot of hand-wringing by investors and, and just general industry concerns about CapEx. So, so um, we're seeing operator CapEx, I think, remain um, steady and shifting of buckets within that CapEx budget. And we're also seeing, you know, new private equity coming in. Uh, in a lot of cases, I've met a few folks even at the, the Western Region uh, event you hosted. Um, so it's, it's nice to see some of these, you know, public-private partnerships come to come together that really have an opportunity to uh you know for investors have a nice long-term uh, uh viewpoint on how strategic fiber investment is i i was kind of caught by surprise at how 5g job fell off a cliff um you know right after our austin event um i went over and i had to give a talk at the big 5g event in austin and it was a ghost town and <laughs> i was like man this is this died and then you start seeing all the RAND reports coming out that everything's really falling off a cliff. So is that gonna rebound or? No, it, it eventually will. I think, um, 
you know, the first build out, the first the first 5G phase of build over the last few years was focused on coverage and then slowly adding capacity where you need that. Um, and so, um, you know, the, 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 the real kind of golden chalice of 5G that becomes this enterprise IoT play has really lagged. And so, in essence, there are no new 5G revenues at all today. It's an absolute zero. It is just straight across from 4G. So the operators, I think, are, you know, reassessing their plans because there was supposed to be a new set of revenues coming in that were enterprise driven. Um, and there's something called network slicing that was kind of created for the 5G environment, I think could eventually be applied to other parts of the network. Uh, but that's that's one of the key elements of the 5G core that's that's not coming anytime soon. That is a reason why the, the, the 5G spend is down. So um, in, in one sense, I think it creates some negative sentiment for the industry. But in, I would also point out it's a it's an opportunity for the fiber industry to flex flex their muscles if we can get costs under control. I, I think costs of fiber are probably, you know, one of the biggest challenges here you know, from a regulatory perspective. And you got the labor costs as well that, um, you know, those are those are some of the bigger challenges. I think that the, the fiber industry needs to take on. And I think the FBA does a great job of that, uh, but this just needs to keep driving that driving that message home. Well, hopefully with all the fiber infrastructure we're going to put across the nation and between now and the end of the decade, that will just kind of help put some more wind back in the 5G sales, 6G, because, you know, obviously we all like yeah. our, our little cell phones and stuff. Uh, so yesterday, Wall Street Journal front page, AT&T stock dropped to the lowest point in 30 years, way yeah. down by the legacy lead cable issue. How yeah. big a deal is this? And is this going to really um, cause some negative impact to right. what we're all trying to accomplish here? Uh, as usual, I think the stock market overreacts to everything, good and bad. Uh, I've done some of my own diligence and talked to some real experts uh, in this area. Um, lead cable stopped being deployed in the 1960s. <laughs> so it's not something that's out there in massive, massive quantities, but it is still out there. It was heavily used in uh, underwater cable um, uh, across lakes and bays and rivers and these sorts of things. Um, my, my, I, I think my checks indicate that the operators are very much on top of this issue, that they, they evaluate the integrity of these cables. That um, doesn't mean there's not gonna be rare instances of you know, exposure and liability, but my perspective is I don't view this as a major problem. I think it's in line with, um, kind of business as usual, to be honest. Um, I, I think that, uh, uh, it, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly on the, you know, being on the front page of the journal, it's got every CEO's attention right now. So they're going to go do the, you know, you know, sharpen their pencils and, and reevaluate exactly the status of all the uh, lead cable that's out there, but they know exactly where it is. Um, and, you know, I, I think I, I, a couple of the, Couple of the operators have come out in the last uh, 24 hours or so, and and given an exact detail of how many how much cable they have out there, and uh, from their perspective, they 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 think it's safer to leave it where it is than actually pull it out, um, because the the cost of you know the, not just the cost but the uh, 
the environmental impact of removing it could be worse than leaving it in place. So uh, I think it's a pretty much uh, an overblown situation. And um, I, you know, I suspect we'll, we'll get back to business as usual here in the coming weeks. Yeah, I get some comments from our audience saying that some remediation strategies will be developed. So you really don't have to even remove the old cable. But uh, yeah. again, it's just one of those things that has could be a disruptor. Um, but all right, so last question. You know, what do you feel as the biggest challenging facing our industry over the next two years? Yeah, I, I think uh, we hear a lot about permitting, local permitting, and trying to streamline that. Uh, I think uh, just keeping up the good fight in terms of uh, how important fiber is for economic infrastructure. A, a lot of cities are on board with that, um, but there, I'm sure there are still, you know, folks out there whose jobs depend on, you know, enforcing, you know, the, the legacy rules from the last 30 years and how you dig up streets and how much time it takes. And, and so I, I think streamlining of permitting is, is really important. Um, availability of labor is probably the next. Uh, I, I, I suspect that the inflationary pressures, both on labor costs and, uh, you know, kind of other materials costs, is is what is kind of past its peak. Uh, we're hearing good financial news on a daily basis, um, you know, at the federal at the at the federal level here in the U.S. So I, I'm hoping that inflation doesn't get in the way of this, and I'm, I I really think that's my my view at this point that we're we're, we're through the worst of it. Um, so yeah, I would I would say permitting and availability of labor and some of the great work uh, that the FBA is doing on uh, to onboard uh, you know new fiber optic technicians. It's just awesome, and um, you know I think that's 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 a tremendous uh, you know uh, movement by the for the industry. So so thanks for that, Gary. Well, certainly on our public policy term permitting is at the top of the list. So we are camped out at House Energy and Commerce, and you know trying to make some uh, progress there. So Ryan, thanks. I really appreciate um, you know it's great to see you in, in Tahoe, and uh, thanks for taking time out of your. Uh, time in Bend, Oregon. Enjoy your time there. And Will we'll do. see you in Orlando in a few weeks. You're well. Thanks and I so want to much. thank everybody for joining us and hope you get back together next Wednesday Fire for Breakfast. We're going to be talking to John Gabriel on the Center for Employment Opportunities as we talked about labor is so critical. And discussing a fair chance hiring with conviction. So you're not going to want to miss that. So thanks everyone and we'll see you guys next Wednesday.